This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, October 23rd, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Today, preparing for the restart of student loan payments. One thing I really work on is trying to help people put it in perspective so that it just doesn't consume all of their thoughts. Plus, we remember a life spent innovating and reporting. Colonel, could you tell us the events leading up to the day you were shot down, May of 66? And considering the future of healthcare means more than just technology and hospitals. Whether we're thinking about the, you know, the future broadly or specifically about healthcare, we need to recognize that there are these second order effects that kick in when we start to see changes. Before that, this hour's news from NPR. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a premier Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being, offering a variety of amenities and living options, including apartments, cottages, and village homes. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents an evening of live classical music on Thursday, November 2nd. This concert showcases Grammy-nominated pianist Joyce Yang performing iconic classical compositions on the historical Van Cliburn Steinway concert piano. Tickets at crystalbridges.org. It is Monday, October 23rd, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Later on today's show, we remember the life and work of Jim Pitcock, the longtime news director at KATV. We'll discuss his legacy with Randy Dixon of the Pryor Center. That's in our second half hour. For millions of student loan borrowers across the nation, October marked the start of loan repayments after an almost three-year hiatus. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth breaks down what the process looks like after that break and a new round of federal debt relief. So I'm here with Jack Travis. Jack, you are a recent college graduate. Congratulations. How Thank does that you. feel? That feels, feels very good. Um, <laughs> glad to be over with school, finally, <laughs> until I go back to school, maybe. So before you went to college, what did you know about student loans? And were you like, this is the best option for me to pay for school? Or this is, was it just like an inevitable thing that you knew was going to have to happen? Uh, yeah, so I didn't have a college fund going into my undergraduate. So I knew that it was going to have to come out of either my pocket, scholarship, student loans, whatever. You know, I didn't, I, there wasn't like a set amount of money that I could use. Yeah. So um, I just kind of viewed it, yeah, as like an ined- inevitable thing that just kind of the way I, I saw it was like, I want to be, in this case, a journalist. I need a degree to be a journalist. I need to go to college to get a degree. I need to take out student loans to go to college. Yeah. So it just sort of seemed the natural progression. Between then and graduating, did you think about the loans very often? Mm, I really didn't, to be honest. I mean, it wasn't until sort of the end of my undergraduate that it really started to hit me that I was in a lot of debt. Um, I'm still in the six-month grace period yeah. um, after you, after I graduate, because I graduated in May. Mm-hmm. So I still have a little bit of time. But, I mean, to be honest, like, I really don't know anything about my students. I know how much they are, yeah. and I know that eventually I'll have to pay them back. But that's about where my knowledge stops. And so what do you want to know? All right. The problem is that I actually don't have any answers for any of the questions you're about to give me. But, but... 
I can I can figure it out. So lay it on me. What do you want to know about these student loans? Well, first of all, how am I gonna repay them? Like, am I just gonna receive a text one day and like, you know, leave money at this address and you know don't bring anyone else? Like, <laughs> and also like my big question, and this is something I don't know if you could provide an answer to, but like, you know, will I be financially ready for it? You know, yeah. like I mean, the whole promise was that I would get this degree, and then by the time I got out of college, I would be in a position to where I could start making repayments on my loan. And it's like, will I be in that position? Because right now, like, I don't know if I am. I mean, that's a real anxiety for me. Like, you know, like, I mean, I'm just now figuring out how to, like, really budget and live on my own. And all of a sudden, like, this is this whole thing that I'll it's like something like I'm almost afraid to ask questions about, you know, because that makes it more real. Yeah. And it's sort of like uh, cross that bridge when you get there, even though that's sort of irresponsible. That's <laughs> just kind of how I'm uh, dealing with it, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Any other things you want to know about or like questions you have? Just I'm very curious about the relief process, you mm-hmm. know, right? Because like, if there is relief and I do qualify for it, I would love to I'd love to get it. So where where do I go to learn more about that? You know, so to get the answers to these questions, I first wanted to get a little background on what student loans look like here in the natural state. For instance, how many people actually have student loans? You know, we're right at 400,000 Arkansas citizens that have student loan debt. So, you know, over 10 percent of All Arkansas citizens uh, have debt that they're dealing with. That's Tony Williams with the Arkansas Student Loan Authority, the state agency in charge of providing information and resources on educational finances. He says the total dollar amount of student loan debt as of June 2023... We were at about $13.5 billion in student loan debt. So for the state of Arkansas or Arkansas citizens... So when you consider that another uh, semester has begun, we're probably up to, you know, $14 billion now. Okay, so now that payments are due and interest is accruing again, what exactly should these borrowers know? Whether you're a borrower that has never made a monthly student loan payment because you graduated since the payment pause began, or if you're just someone who hasn't, you know, been in that the habit of making payments for the last few years, we know that this is a process that can be overwhelming and and confusing at times. Rachel Rotunda is Director of Government Relations for the National Association of Student Financial Aid Administrators. She recommends every borrower should start by getting in touch with their loan servicer. So if if you have loans through the Department of Education, you will be assigned a loan servicer. And this is really the entity through which you're actually going to be making your monthly student loan payments. Uh, your servicer is there to help if you have any questions. If you're struggling with that payment amount, they're there to, to walk you through what options might be available. A servicer is essentially a company who handles the repayment of your loan. And Rotunda says the Department of Education should contact you before your payments begin about who that is. But if they haven't, you can find all of that information about your servicer by logging into the Federal Student Aid website. Studentaid.gov is really the place to start. And then once a borrower has confirmed who their servicer is, they can then go and log into their account with that specific servicer where you'll be able to find a lot more specific information on things like payment due date, payment amount, and different repayment plans that are available. 
Once you've registered and logged in, make sure to update your contact information. If you no longer have that student email or you've moved to a new address, the Department of Education and your loan servicer need to know. And if you can't access the website or forget your password, you can always call for help. That's 1-800-FED-AID or 1-800-433-3243. Okay, so now you know who to pay, but what about how exactly to make those payments? If your pulse just started racing, Tony Williams says don't stress too much just yet. The federal government, specifically the Department of Education, is uh, allowing student loan borrowers to have a uh, what they call an on-ramp period where you have the first 12 months to really uh, become reacclimated in making your student loan payments. So they're providing a lot of leniency this first 12 months to uh, work with the Department of Education in, in scheduling these first payments and delaying first payments during the first 12 months. So if you miss, forget, or need to delay a payment during this period, the usual penalties and late fees won't apply. And when it comes to the payment options, Rotunda explains most are income-driven. So these are payment plans that borrowers can enroll in that determine the monthly payment amount based on a borrower's income and family size. And the intent here is that payments under these income-driven repayment plans are are supposed to be more affordable than what you might have under like a 10-year standard repayment plan. So there are a few different types of income-driven plans. So borrowers have to walk through those plans and figure out which one works best for them. But each of these plans provides borrowers with forgiveness of their remaining balance after 20 or 25 years of payment, just depending on the plan. And Williams says some of those repayment options since the pandemic pause have also changed. One new option that student loan borrowers have is the SAVE repayment plan, and that's been recently introduced uh, by the Department of Education. It allows a borrower to make lower monthly payments than they were required to in the past. SAVE, an acronym for Saving on a Valuable Education, has more than 38,000 Arkansans enrolled already, and the Department of Education estimates the plan could save borrowers an average of $1,000 a year based on new adjustments for income, family size, and current loan balance. So what about loan forgiveness? There is one option that's been around since 2007, the Public Loan Forgiveness Program. It covers the remainder of a person's debt after 10 years and 120 qualifying payments made while they work full-time for state, federal, tribal, or local government, the military, or a qualifying nonprofit. And while the U.S. Supreme Court did strike down a plan from the Biden administration to deliver sweeping debt relief earlier this year, Rotunda says the Department of Education has been working to offer more targeted relief. The Education Department is currently giving retroactive credit for time spent in repayment that didn't qualify before, like forbearance or deferment. Um, but we do know the administration is is moving forward with trying to can to, to kind of administer that cancellation program through a different pathway um, that comes through a different legal authority. That process is is underway over at the Department of Education, but it is expected to be a bit more lengthy of a process. So we won't really have clarification on if or if that plan will be able to move forward, and if so, what it will look like until some months down the line. 
And both Rotunda and Williams suggest using the studentaid.gov's loan simulator to help you determine what repayment plan makes the most sense for you and if you qualify for any of that debt forgiveness. It'll ask all kinds of life questions from employment and income to marital status, where you live, and your repayment goals. Okay, so you've got an idea of how to go about paying back those loans. But what about dealing with the stress? One thing I really work on is is trying to help people put it in perspective so that just and consume all of their thoughts. Susan Toneyman is a counselor with the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences Northwest Campus. She works with a lot of recent medical school graduates and students and says the financial anxiety from loan debt can be crippling and in some cases can even prevent people from making those repayments. It's everything they're looking at through the lens of of finances, you know, when there is so much more a part of their lives. Um, And gratitude is involved in that too, right? So uh, being grateful for, you know, I've completed school, you know, and being able to balance that along with, yes, I know there's going to be stress. Yes, uh, it's going to be difficult to try to navigate it, but I've come this far and I can do this too. Tonyman says identifying the stressor is important and talking with your financial counselor or loan officer about action items to get or stay on track can help people get perspective and manage the anxiety of that debt. When you, when you expect I'm going to be making those payments, if you visualize it, you know, and you get really specific on how you're going to cope ahead for that. Um, and then you're, then you rehearse it. Okay, well, I'm going to be, you know, planning that budget or I'm going to be, I know this is going to cause anxiety. I know I'm going to go talk to that financial counselor and this is going to be, make me nervous and uncomfortable. And, but a lot of what I do as students is helping them rehearse those uncomfortable situations. All right, Jack, I've presented you with the evidence, with the, with what to do. How prepared do you feel now? I feel more prepared for what will happen in a practical sense. Okay. You know, I'm anxiously awaiting my loan servicer to reach out. Thankfully, I still have the same email address I used during school. So I'm fortunate uh, personally for that. Um, But yeah, I definitely know more what the landscape looks like. Yeah. And since doing this, I mean, talking about it, has it made you think about it more or be less, like, nervous to actually confront it and face it? It maybe? feels like there's a, a actual next step. Yeah. You know, like, it feels like I'm not just kind of waiting in this weird limbo space. It feels like I actually have things I can go do to get the ball rolling. You yeah. Know? Reach out to the necessary bodies. Uh wait for that, you know, but they will contact me. Yeah. So just be ready and vigilant for that. There you go. Yeah. And uh, what they all said to me was just to not wait. I know you're in the grace period right now, mm-hmm. but but uh, it's always better to kind of know where you stand than, than put it off. Right. Proactivity is something that seems to be a virtue in this whole process. Yeah. I think you're going to be fine. Yeah. I feel good about it. I think so, too. You know, hopefully. Uh, you know, I kind of roll forward with the Jerry Seinfeld. Everything will work out. So hopefully that continues. All right. Well, thanks, Jack. Thanks for talking to me. I hope that this helped. 
It did. I did. Thank you for doing the research. And if any of you have more questions about what loan repayment looks like for you, we'll have information in this story on our website. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. The Momentary in Bentonville presents Inverse 2023, a four-day performance art festival, November 2nd through the 5th, featuring more than 14 performance artists from across the U.S. The festival brings liveness, experimentation, and radical approaches to the important issues of our moment. Tickets and information at themomentary.org. But, you know, I don't think you can do uh, something for as long as I've done television news without, you know, missing it. This is Ozarks at Large. We're going to explain what you just heard in a moment. First, let me introduce Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History. Welcome back, Randy. Always great to be here. Uh, Today, we're talking about someone I'm going to call an Arkansas legend. Well, uh, he was described that way at a lot of the media and social media. Uh, And we're talking about uh, broadcast journalist Jim Pitcock. Um, Very close to me because he was my boss, he was my mentor, and he passed earlier this month. He was at KATV for about 30 years? Yes, yes, and he he ran the place from the mid-60s to the mid-90s. Yeah, he taught me everything I know about television news. Uh, he, he was also a, an innovator. He, he was involved or responsible for a lot of firsts in television. Uh, KATV had, for a period of time, the lo- largest, tallest tower, mm-hmm. uh, broadcast tower in the country. It was, uh, at the time, the second tallest structure in the world. Good grief. I know. Uh, KATV was the first with local color broadcasting, so first news and color. He developed this statewide microwave system. This was before the, you know, the general use of satellite trucks for news stations, and you could only use microwave, which only had uh, a certain distance that it was effective. And he had these relay systems that we could go live from anywhere between Little Rock and Tulsa, Oklahoma. Mm. It was it was amazing. Uh, he did introduce the first satellite truck in the market for news. And I don't know if you know this, when you're watching the weather and you see these live weather cameras, mm-hmm. Bob Steele tells me, tells me that Jim invented wow. those. We, KTV was the first station in the country to use live weather cameras. One of his many firsts was uh, going to Vietnam. He was the only Arkansas broadcast journalist to do that, and that was in 1967. This is Jim Pitcock, news director of KATV, aboard the U.S. aircraft carrier Intrepid in the Tonkin Gulf off North Vietnam. More than a dozen Arkansans are stationed on the Intrepid. And we will have interviews with these Arkansans on a special program Thanksgiving evening at 8.30. Don't miss Arkansans in Vietnam, Thursday night at 8.30 on KATV Channel 7. Yeah, I remember when you first played this clip for us, and I was just stunned that a station in Little Rock in 1967 was sending a reporter... I. It just seems so beyond what we would think of a, a TV station at the time doing. 
it it was unheard of. And that was one thing about Jim and KTV is he always thought big mm. and um, do whatever you need to do uh, to bring the Arkansas stories to Arkansas. He used to call it know when to shoot the quarter, <laughs> which was, you know, when to go all out. Right. And he would do that on election nights. Uh, we did it for all the coverage of Bill Clinton's sure. presidential election. If, well, the uh, implosion of the Marion and Manning right. hotels, right. we were live there with about nine cameras, and that was back in 1980. Yeah. So um, he he knew when to shoot the quarter. Well, you often, you mentioned that you would talk to him after or, or for that piece we did about his trip to Vietnam, you talked to him about his recollections. Right. We had done an overall piece about uh, Arkansas during the Vietnam War, and this was one portion of it. And I talked to, to him about his trip, and he talked about why it was important for local journalists to go somewhere like that. Uh, we thought that uh, the networks were doing a great job, all three networks were doing a great job of, of covering the war on a daily basis, but we wanted to bring the story of the Arkansas uh, military back to the state. So that's, that's the reason we went. We were over there for about a month, and uh, uh, we were there, uh, I guess, late October, November of 1967, and uh, we had no way of knowing this, of course, no one did, but uh, that was just a very short time before the Tet Offensive. They were, uh, the Vietnamese, the North Vietnamese, were getting ready to uh, mount uh, what turned out to be one of the biggest uh, conflicts of a war. Can you imagine? Um, no. he, I didn't realize he had been there for a month. month. That's a long time. Yeah, it is. And he had several stories about some pretty scary situations. Notice he said, well, the networks were doing a fine job of <laughs> of covering the story. He used to say, you know, you can't out-network the networks. You're one local crew. Right. And um, he told me this before I went to produce our coverage of the 1992 Democratic Convention in New York. He said, now, Randy, you're going to have... Um, a tendency to want to cover the national story. You're going to see all the networks there. They're covering the convention. Don't cover the convention. I was like, what do you mean? He said, you cover the Arkansans. Let them cover the big story. You cover the small stories and make it all about Arkansas. That's great advice. Oh, and I, and I use that on everything I covered. Um. Another item that I remember that we've talked about that Jim Pitcock was very instrumental in was the special report about um, the former prisoner of war. Right. Colonel James Lamar. Yeah. Um, he uh, this was right after the POWs in Vietnam were released and he was sort of touring the country, uh, received some criticism about it, but talked about his experiences. And um, he met up with Jim and um, this is this is part of that report. The story of Colonel James Lamar is a production of KATV News. 
Now, here is KATV News Director Jim Pitcock. Thank you, Ron Gardner, and good evening, everybody. Yesterday, the Defense Department lifted the restrictions on the stories the former prisoners of war in North Vietnam could tell. Tonight, Colonel James Lamar, who spent almost seven years in the North Vietnamese prison, is with us, and he's going to tell his story. Colonel, could you tell us the events leading up to the day you were shot down, May of 66? Yes, I was flying missions over North Vietnam out of a base at Karat, Thailand, flying the F-105. We were on a particularly tough target, and we managed to get that target the day before I was shot down. I was scheduled again on that target that same day that I was shot down, but the mission was canceled since photo reconnaissance proved that we had indeed gotten the target the day before, so I was scheduled on an alternate target and it was on this mission that I was shot down. I think people who have been watching KETV for decades, you know, oh yeah, he was there for 30 years, they may forget that there was a brief amount of time he wasn't there during that 30 years. Right. It was very short. Yeah. That interview you heard at the beginning, mm-hmm. um, he was actually leaving the station. Uh, he had been offered a job by Congressman Bill Alexander. From Northeast Arkansas, right? First District. Yeah. And uh, he took the job, and he was leaving KTV. he thought, for good. And before he left, uh, a young reporter there on staff <laughs> named Steve Barnes uh, interviewed him. And at this point, he had only been at KTV for 13 years. Oh, there have been, uh, there have been a lot of big stories that uh, I've had the opportunity to cover, probably... Uh, the biggest story from a national angle was the missile disaster at Circe in August of 65 when all of those men were killed while they were uh, remodeling the missile silo. Uh, then, of course, the Rockefeller campaign, uh, the Bumpers campaign, the McClellan-Prior campaign, the McClellan-Prior debate. Uh, those all stand out in my mind. Jim missed KTV. KTV missed him. And he was back in less than a year. I think it was more like about nine months. Uh, but, you know, going, leaning towards those politics, he always loved covering politics. Uh, in my count, and I was thinking about it, I believe um, he ushered seven governors in and out of office and you think about bill clinton i was going to say none of those was there for a long time very few of those governors were there for just two years <laughs> that's right so i wanted to pull some clips of some of the things he talked about that he covered um and this is a great moment from january of 1967 uh orville Faubus has been defeated by winthrop rockefeller uh, in the 1966 election for governor. It's inauguration day in January of 67. And that day, Orville Faubus is leaving his office for the last time, and he's walking down the steps of the state capitol. And Jim is alone with his cameraman, Jim Casey, and they catch him. Alley with uh, some sadness, but without any... Uh, second thoughts about my decision. I leave with relief. 
that I can lay down the burdens which uh, I've had to bear for 12 years, all the many problems, all the many things that needed to be done, and we've accomplished some of them, but it's never, you're never in government able to satisfy everyone or do all the things that should be done. So speaking of Rockefeller, here's Jim anchoring the live coverage of his inauguration, and while I was going through the clips, I realized, wait a minute, this is the same day yeah. that he did that Faubus interview. Here he is uh, anchoring live coverage. For this live coverage of the inaugural activities, here is Jim Pitcock. Good afternoon from Robinson Auditorium. Governor Rockefeller is about to enter the auditorium where he will deliver his official inaugural address. The governor is expected to outline the legislation he will ask to implement his tax program. Earlier today, the governor, accompanied by Mrs. Rockefeller, several other family members, and Lieutenant Governor Maurice Footsie Britt, attended a dedication service at Second Baptist Church in Little Rock. John D. Rockefeller is the eldest of the five Rockefeller brothers. He flew into Little Rock today also to attend the inauguration ceremonies. In keeping with these gubernatorial inaugurations, uh, here's Jim anchoring coverage of uh, Rockefeller's successor, Dale Bumpers, in 1973, and this is his second term, right. his return to office. Uh, in this clip, he's joined by longtime political analyst Jim Rankino, and there's that young reporter again, Steve Barnes. What do you think is going through Governor Bumpers at uh, this moment, on the uh, uh, just minutes before his second inauguration? Well, probably a great deal different thoughts than two years ago when he was an incoming governor. Uh, at that time, he certainly was awed by the office that uh, he was elected to. This time, he seems to have grown used to it, and when eight out of ten people vote for you, uh, he shouldn't be too excited about it, except that he's going into a second term. The ceremonies at the Capitol are scheduled to get underway in seven or eight minutes. KETV reporter Steve Barnes is at the Capitol. Let's check in with Steve and find out what the current situation is. Steve? I thought for a moment I might be hidden, Jim. This is the governor's speech, the speech that we're going to hear in just a few minutes. The speech is 19 pages long. I uh, spoke with the governor just a moment ago. I asked him if he could to characterize this speech in five words or less. Well, he laughingly said he could not do that, then went on to say that, uh, in his opinion, it addresses the critical needs of the state. So here's another story that Jim did that's kind of political, kind mm -hmm. of entertainment, but he had worked out an interview with Martha Mitchell. Uh, if you'll recall, Martha Mitchell, who was an Arkansas native, was married to John Mitchell, who was the U.S. Attorney General in the Nixon administration. So during all the Watergate, um, she was quite vocal uh, about the scandal. He scored this interview in Washington in uh, 1971. Cock of station KATV. The subject, her plans for the future. Well, a lot of people are always asking me if I'd like to run for office. No, I have no desire, nor does my husband, as far as politics are concerned. But I have two things I'd like to do, and that's beautification of the city of Washington, number one. And number two, recently I've gotten a desire to work in the State Department. I would like to better the relations of 
America with the other nations of the world, to try to put a little love into the world instead of at each other's throats. And I resent the fact that America is not looked upon as a beautiful, wonderful country. And of course, she's become uh, a known figure again through the podcast and streaming television series that kind of follows her. That's right, yeah. and and we had done a segment yeah. on Martha because of that. Yeah, and Jim talks about that. What's funny is that the Mitchells were living in a penthouse in Watergate Apartments. Huh. Huh. Yeah. Before right. everything happened, so this was a little ironic. Uh, Jim also told me they arrived about noon. Uh, they were brought in by security. Uh, Martha came out, and she had a couple of friends, but she was still in her robe, not quite ready. So she talked for a few minutes, excused herself, and got ready for the interview. Um, But this was another instance where I talked to Jim about it, and these were his recollections. But she was just delightful. She was so happy to see some folks from Arkansas. And she was she was from Pine Bluff. Uh, she uh, 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 her father uh, was a farmer, cotton farmer down uh, south of Pine Bluff, and and she had gone to grade school in Pine Bluff. And during that conversation, she wanted to know about. She mentioned all of these folks who lived in Arkansas that she had. Uh, Grown up with or gone to college with, and she said, "Well, what about so and so, so and so? Is she still around? Well, what about what about so and so, so and so?" And so, and she said, "Well, now, now you're with the television station, and look, and you know, she just was just full of energy, and but the, she wanted to talk about Arkansas." All right, his main accomplishment though had nothing to do with being on the air, writing any kind of. St- story um he developed well the reason we're here right now mm-hmm. uh is this ah. archive system yeah when we were making the transition from film to videotape he knew this was in the late 70s he knew that videotape was going to be the standard and film would become obsolete. So he went through the process of culling through the daily Mm -hmm. news film for basically 20, 25 years and curating and determining what was newsworthy and what was historical. and, And he painstakingly did that for years. Now... We have it at the Pryor Center, and uh, we are able to soon share it with the entire state. It's 26,000 hours. We almost have it all digitized, thanks to Barbara Tyson and the Tyson Foods Foundation. And I think this is the first time (laughs) I've mentioned this, but we're thinking sometime next year we will have the entire collection up online wow it may be a little difficult to navigate Mm because this is all new territory but we're hoping 2024 will be an amazing 
uh, year for people to view Arkansas history. This is outstanding. Yeah, it was it it was amazing. Uh, can I throw in one more? Please, please. All right, all right. This is this is Jim. This is that 1977. I guess we could call it a farewell interview. Very premature, but you know he thought he was leaving for good, and. Uh, this is the conversation at the end he had with Steve Barnes. Uh, I would put uh, uh, our staff, uh, you know, the people on our staff up against anyone in the state. I, uh, if, I, if I have a, uh, a strong point, I think it's, you know, in selecting people uh, for the department, you know, like yourself and some of the other people we have. I'm, I'm very proud. Uh, in fact, I, I think uh, I'm prouder of that than any other thing, the fact that we've really been able to get some uh, good people and to keep them. Maybe we just had a good leader. He was one of those rare people that could think with both sides of his brain, you know, the creative side, the analytical side. So he was kind of a combination of journalist, strategist, innovator, but, you know, he was also a historian of Arkansas, and he was a teacher. Um, you know, Arkansas is going to miss you know, a great journalist who I think, you know, saved a visual treasure of Arkansas modern history, but, you know, I'm going to miss a good friend. Randy Dixon with the Prior Center. Thank you. See you next week. This is Ozarks at Large. The future of healthcare is a phrase that may mean different things to different people. Some may imagine a science fiction situation, perhaps robots doing a quick scan and quickly curing any disease, or maybe something more low stakes, like a doctor's visit that doesn't leave you in the waiting room for an hour. The Arkansas Center for Health Improvement is hosting two symposia, one in Little Rock and another in Fayetteville, to discuss healthcare innovations, media literacy to spot medical misinformation, and more. Dr. Sean Dubrovac will be the keynote speaker at both events. He's a futurist, a trendcaster, and economist who will be discussing the forces that are defining the future of healthcare. We spoke last week over Zoom, and before we started recording, he said he had an eight-month-old in the house and pre-apologized in case she interrupted the interview. Dubrovac says being a new dad shapes his view on all things related to the future, and especially healthcare. In this country, we have made incredible progress when it comes to healthcare. We have figured out how to treat and, in some ways, cure some very, very serious illnesses. We've broadly extended life over a long period of time. And at the same time, there's obviously a lot more that we can do. There are still uh, lots of diseases out there that, you know, that we need to address. Also, it's clear that we are addressing a much wider spectrum of the human condition. And, and I think that's one of the great promises of healthcare is that it isn't just, you know, ter terminal illnesses we're looking at, but we are looking at all aspects of what it means to be human. We're looking at wellness. We're looking at mental health. We're looking at, at all aspects of healthcare. And, you know, I'm excited about what the future brings and there's still a lot of work to do. Is there anything that sets apart Arkansas for you when it comes to the future of healthcare? I think Arkansas, like many states, it has unique issues. And I think that's very important 
for everyone in Arkansas to, to recognize. We have obviously big national policies. We have kind of regional dynamics, and and those don't always align. And so it's very important to look at the the unique aspects, what makes Arkansas unique, because that will also play out in the healthcare needs. Uh, you know, Arkansas has a, a mix of rural areas and and more populated areas those have very different healthcare needs and will have very different healthcare needs moving forward in the future i think the other thing to recognize is that none of this happens in a bubble none of this happens in a silo that anything playing out in healthcare is colliding with other factors that are also playing out so we have demographic shifts that are that are playing out we have preference shifts that are that are playing out. Obviously, as we look at Gen Z and then coming up behind them, Gen Alpha, their preferences and how they interact with other people, certainly how they'll interact with the healthcare system, are different than our parents' generation, maybe than our you know our your own generation, different than the millennial generation. So e- each one of these has preferences that will influence and interact with some of these other forces that are that are playing out. I think one of the things I think about a lot, I grew up in a pretty rural part of Illinois and getting good, reliable, consistent health care was a struggle that if you weren't going, you know, 20, 30 miles to the hospital to go visit your doctor, you just weren't getting any care done. Uh, and I think in rural places in Arkansas, we're seeing some of that as well. And I think in this immediate moment, we think, oh, telehealth is the answer to this, right? That we can just jump on a Zoom call and we can talk to our doctor and we can get some scripts and we can go to a... But we also have to take into account that in order to do telehealth, you need to have broadband internet access. And that's not always super available too. So the point I'm trying to get at here is that like, there's a culmination of a lot of different factors that have to go into improving the future of healthcare in this way, right? That it's not just offering these services, but making sure that the infrastructure is available for it as well, right? I think you you raise a really important aspect of the future of healthcare. It used to be that healthcare was on its own, that we would build a hospital or a clinic, we would staff it with healthcare professionals in that geographic region, in that area, and, and then we would deliver healthcare services for that region. Now, telehealth opens up a new channel for delivering healthcare. We can, with a good broadband connection, we can provide healthcare services anywhere in the world. And those healthcare services can be delivered, ultimately could be delivered by anyone else in the world. And so that that's a great democratization that, that, that connectivity and the internet bring to all of us. But as you point out, we need to have good infrastructure, and it also opens up other challenges. And I think that is whether we're thinking about the you know the future broadly or specifically about healthcare. We need to recognize that there are these second order effects that kick in when we start to see changes. So while we're opening up opportunity, we also need to recognize that we could be creating challenges for for certain areas, unique challenges in many ways. And we have to find solutions for for those challenges as well. 
as someone who has just spent a lot of time dealing with healthcare of of having a new baby and and seeing the the inner workings of of how insurance works and those sorts of things it's really interesting to me to think about and especially for someone like you who is a future futurist and you think about the economy of like the struggle of making sure that healthcare is good but how do you incentivize private companies to want to invest in this. So how do you find that balance between we're making sure that the people that we're taking care of are taken care of, but also incentivizing private businesses and private healthcare and all of these private entities to continue offering this? We aren't yet where we need to be, but I also think that companies are beginning to realize that healthy employees are more productive employees and that healthy definition spans across a wide spectrum of conditions. So it isn't just that they're showing up at work and that they're healthy enough, physically healthy enough to show up at work. It's also that they that they're showing up uh, in, in a way that is meaningful and that requires a, a more holistic approach to you know to medicine and to healthcare. And I, and I think businesses are recognizing that it isn't just about costs, that it's also about providing you know an environment and creating the, the the right conditions to help my employees really show up in a way that allows them to make impact from day one from start to finish you're going to be speaking at the AKI conference in Little Rock and up here in Northwest Arkansas where I'm at uh, what sort of things can people expect to hear from you at this conference we'll be talking about the the forces that are defining the future and, and specifically what that means for healthcare how these forces are going to materialize in, in kind of new ways of delivering healthcare new types of healthcare if you think of all the advances that we've seen in recent decades i think we are just on the surface we've only scratched the surface of what's to come and that really will require thinking about healthcare in a, in a totally new light. Uh, it is about bringing together technology and people in new ways. And so we'll be talking a lot about how this materializes in, in healthcare and what it means for the future. Sean Dubrovec is a futurist and the keynote speaker for the two symposia hosted by the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. The first is at the Ron Robinson Theater in Little Rock on Wednesday from 2 until 5. The second is at the Fayetteville Town Center Thursday, November 2nd, from 2 until 5. You can find all the details for those events at ozarksatlarge.com. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Frank's son, Seals, was born August 14, 1942, in Osceola. The youngest of 13 children, Seals was called Little Son, as his father Jim was known around Mississippi County as Son. Jim Seals owned a long-running juke joint in Osceola called the Dipsy Doodle. In fact, Son Seals was born in the house behind the club. Jim was a veteran of the medicine show circuit and played piano, guitar, drums, and trombone, and also managed a West Memphis blues club in the 1930s prior to opening the Dipsy Doodle. Young Frank Seals got his start in music playing drums at the Dipsy Doodle before he was even a teenager. But Frank didn't stay at his dad's club long. In a few years, Frank's son Seals was touring with the likes of slide guitar great Earl Hooker and Albert King, also considered a hometown hero in Osceola. 
and Albert King's guitar playing in part inspired Sun Seals to take up the instrument himself. By age 18, Seals was fronting his own band, playing guitar and singing. He performed at Little Rock's Chez Paris Club four nights a week, off and on for four years. When his father became sick, Seals returned to Mississippi County and played at Osceola's Blue Goose and Harlem Clubs. I said, hey, hey, baby, now, 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 won't you call me up on the phone? Please call and tell me, tell me I can come back home. After his father's death in 1971, Sun Seals moved to Chicago to further pursue music and his welding of searing hard rock and blues guitar. It worked. As theatrical as it may sound, Seals got his first record deal after a clubgoer called a local label owner and held the phone towards the stage as Seals performed at the Flamingo Club on the south side of Chicago. His debut album on Chicago's Alligator Records came out in 1973. The New York Times called Sun Seals the most exciting young blues guitarist and singer in years in a 1977 piece written by Little Rock native Robert Palmer. I'm sitting here thinking And these thoughts make me feel so sad The hard blues sound of Sun Seals endeared him to a rock audience as well. But even with his crossover appeal, the Mississippi County native was rightfully touted as a carrier of the blues torch who is steeped in authenticity. He solidified his reputation through the end of the century. In 1981, Sun Seals was nominated for a Grammy. He appeared in a TV commercial for Olympia Beer. He won Handy Awards in 1985, 1987, and 2001, and performed at the White House for President Bill Clinton. Seals also performed several times with the jam band Fish, who covered his song, Funky Bitch. Seals' license plate read, Bad Acts. But Seals faced personal hardship as well. In 1997, as he slept, son Seals was shot in the jaw by an ex-wife. Two years later, part of Seals' left leg was amputated due to diabetes complications. Besides their shared nickname, Son, and both being musicians, Jim and Frank Seals also both liked large families. Frank left 14 children with his December 20, 2004 death at age 62 in Chicago. Frank's son Seals continued performing until just weeks before his death. As a latter-day bluesman, the influence of Sun Seals will resonate louder than even his intense guitar sound. Here in its entirety is Frank Sun Seals of Osceola with his composition Strung Out Woman from his breakthrough 1976 album Midnight Sun. I work all day walking down in a ditch Trying to get to mine just to get to your fix And when I get hard, they look at me and frown We don't do a damn thing, I'm a steady actor clown But I love you, Lord knows I care That is why, that is why I better pack up child and hit the road Cause I done got tired of carrying a scroll
Frank Sun Seals of Osceola in Mississippi County with Strung Out Woman from his breakthrough second album from 1976. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. Arkansas is underwritten by Arkansas Heritage. Relive your favorite Barton Coliseum concert memories at the Old State House Museum in downtown Little Rock where they still play it loud. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. Matthew produced today's show inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. We've got another show for you tomorrow from the Carver Center for Public Radio. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Thanks for being with us. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents Annie Leibovitz at Work. This exhibition includes the photographer's iconic pictures for Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, and Vogue, as well as new portraits made just for Crystal Bridges. Open until January 29th. Tickets at crystalbridges.org. Walton Arts Center presents The Capital Fools, October 26th as part of its LOL at WAC comedy series. It features former members of the Capitol Steps who were all once Senate staffers. It's an insider's perspective on our current political culture. Tickets at waltonartscenter.org.